On a global scale, Bob Marley was one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century. He was an important figure in the development of reggae music, not only in its inception, but also in its spread all around the world. His songs were the voice of a generation, but even outside his music, he was an advocate for social reform, both internationally and in his native Jamaica. In the turbulent world of Jamaican politics in the 1970s, the influential, reform-minded Bob Marley was seen by some as a potential threat. And if he posed a threat to their political power, they would stop at nothing to silence him. This is Foiled. Episode 5, Exodus from Paradise To understand Bob Marley and the world he grew up and lived in, it's helpful to have some background knowledge on the history of his homeland, Jamaica. The island had been inhabited by the Taino people for centuries by the time the Spanish showed up in the early 1500s. Most of the Taino were wiped out by diseases they had never been exposed to and therefore had never built immunity to. The rest were enslaved by the Spanish. Spain wasn't the only European power with its eye on the island, though, and it was taken over by the English in the mid-1600s. They pretty quickly turned Jamaica into one of their richest colonies, mainly by growing sugar. At first, British sugar plantation owners had their operations run by a mix of white indentured servants and enslaved Africans, but by 1700, they had switched to almost exclusively slave labor. Hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children were taken from their homes in West Africa and brought to Jamaica throughout the 18th century. When slavery was finally abolished in the British Empire in 1833, Jamaica's population was in the ballpark of 370,000. Of those 370,000, about 310,000 were enslaved. Despite the abolition of slavery, the next century of Jamaican history was one of staggering racial inequality, both in legal and economic terms. This gave rise to social movements among the black and indigenous communities of Jamaica in the early 20th century, perpetuated by activists like Marcus Garvey. During these years, the idea of pan-Africanism was developed the concept that there was a common cultural and historical link between the people of Africa and the descendants of Africans who had been forced across the Atlantic during the slave trade. Then in 1930, something happened that would have a major impact on Jamaica forever. Haile Selassie was crowned emperor of Ethiopia. In the 1930s, the Ethiopian Empire was the only independent nation in Africa apart from Liberia. The entire rest of the continent was controlled by Europeans. So the crowning of an African monarch who was actually recognized by the monarchs of Europe was seen as a triumphant moment for the black community globally. In Jamaica, there were many people who began to see Haile Selassie as a kind of messiah or even a living deity. A new religion was formed called Rastafarianism. Rastafari identifies the descendants of the African diaspora, aka the Atlantic slave trade, as the spiritual reincarnation of the ancient Israelites. The continent of Africa is viewed as their heritage, and practitioners are encouraged to visit, or if they so desire, relocate to Africa. Community is central to Rastafari, and is expressed through communal activities like music and the smoking of cannabis. They also tend to be vegetarian or pescatarian, and grow dreadlocks. The religion is meant to be anti-racist and anti-imperialist, and therefore butted heads with the colonial government of Jamaica throughout the 1930s and 1940s. It was into this vibrant, diverse, and ultimately unfair society that Bob Marley was born. Robert Nesta Marley was born on February 6, 1945, in a small town called Nine Mile in British Jamaica. 
His mother was Sedella Malcolm, the daughter of a respected farmer in the all-black community of Nine Mile. She had a lifelong passion for music, singing in her church's choir. Sedella became pregnant at the age of 18, and shortly before her son's birth, she married the boy's father. Norval Marley was a white captain in the British Army, and about 40 years older than his wife. He told Sedella that they were getting married, despite her initial protests, and told her what their son would be named, despite her not particularly caring for the name. You'd think such a nice guy would stick around to be a parent, but Norval was absent throughout most of Bob Marley's early life, and then died of a heart attack at the age of 70 when his son was 10 years old. Young Bob Marley grew up raised by his essentially single mother, attending a local school and helping out on the family farm. One of the friends he made during his childhood in Nine Mile was Neville Livingston, who would later in life go by Bunny Whaler. Marley and his mother moved to Kingston in the 1950s, living in a poor neighborhood called Trenchtown. There, Bob Marley faced discrimination from both the white and black populations of Kingston for his mixed-race parentage, but it was also in Trenchtown that he was first exposed to Rastafarianism, which he became a serious adherent to. He also encountered a vibrant music scene there, and wanted to be a part of it. Marley recorded his first songs in 1962, the same year that Jamaica became independent from Great Britain. Colonialism is not something that just stopped existing a long time ago. In the early 60s, Marley began playing music with his old friend Bunny Whaler, as well as Peter Tosh, in a band that would eventually be called Bob Marley and the Whalers. The Whalers evolved throughout the 1960s, from ska to rocksteady, before eventually becoming influential in a new genre of music called reggae. In 1966, Marley married Rita Anderson, a Sunday school teacher and choir singer who eventually sang background vocals for the Whalers. The band became very successful by the late 60s, and then their fame skyrocketed at the start of the 70s with the release of albums like Catch a Fire and Burnin'. Their music drew on Rasta spirituality, as well as racial and social injustices in Jamaica, both historically and in the present. These themes resonated around the world during this era of decolonization. And for the most part, Marley put his money where his mouth was. The fortune he was gradually accumulating was put to use helping the poor. It's been estimated that he was financially supporting at least 4,000 people in Jamaica, but a financial manager of Marley's says it was far higher than that. All in all, Bob Marley was on a trajectory to international fame and fortune, which would no doubt go on to change the world for the better. But his career, and his life, were very nearly cut short. Jamaican politics in the 1970s were tumultuous to say the least. The island had only been an independent nation for a little over a decade, and had inherited a culture of political violence and bipartisanism from the colonial era. The two major political parties of Jamaica were, and are, the Jamaica Labour Party, which is a mostly center-right party, and the People's National Party, a social democratic party. In 1972, Michael Manley of the People's National Party was elected Prime Minister of Jamaica. He proved to be a fairly popular leader. His administration introduced social programs to help those in need, as well as access to fair wages, land, and literacy. But not all was well. The People's National Party wasn't able to effectively punch through the old structures of political power that had been running Jamaica for decades. The dream had been to completely reorganize the entire system to promote socio-political empowerment and therefore revitalize the country. 
In reality, the PNP had to operate mostly within the confines of the existing order, which had been designed to benefit the most privileged of society. So the opposition coalesced under Edward Sega of the Jamaica Labour Party, who chose to run against Manley in the next election. 1976 was an election year in Jamaica, and a pretty tense one at that. The year opened with riots in Kingston that turned deadly. Many Jamaicans were upset by the state of their political process in the run-up to the 1976 election, and Bob Marley was no exception. In the interest of national unity, he decided to put on a massive benefit concert in Kingston called Smile Jamaica. Marley wanted the show to be at National Heroes Park in Kingston, and to throw such a large concert at such a public venue, he needed permission from the government. He got that permission. He was allowed to put the concert on on December 5th, 1976. This was just 10 days before the election. This gave the impression that Bob Marley was putting on the show to endorse Manley's re-election, but that wasn't true. Marley didn't generally trust politicians, a viewpoint he made well known, and he'd been planning Smile Jamaica to unite the country, not favor one faction over another. But that didn't matter at this point. The phone at Marley's house in Kingston started receiving threatening messages, on top of the tension that was already rampant in the city. But as far as Bob Marley was concerned, he couldn't let down all the people he had promised a free concert to. Regardless of his irritation with the Manly government's timing of the show, he still saw it as a chance to unify the country, and he would go through with it. It was a choice that nearly cost him his life. In the days leading up to Smile Jamaica, Bob Marley and the Whalers were rehearsing almost constantly. That's what they were doing at Marley's house in Kingston on the evening of December 3rd, 1976. Apart from Bob and Rita Marley, the rest of the band was there, along with band manager Don Taylor. While the horn players practiced their parts, Bob stepped out for a short break. He went to the kitchen and began peeling himself a grapefruit while, according to some accounts, the band rehearsed their song, I Shot the Sheriff. Then, the music stopped as a blast of automatic rifle fire rang from outside the house into the windows. Two cars had discreetly followed band manager Don Taylor to the house. From those two cars came at least seven gunmen, armed with automatic rifles and 38 caliber handguns. They had the house surrounded. Rita Marley was shot in the head during the first wave of gunfire. Then the gunmen burst into the house, firing indiscriminately as they went. One of the assailants found Bob Marley and drew his rifle on him. Don Taylor pulled Marley down at the last second, taking five bullets himself in the process. Marley was shot, but by only one of the eight bullets that had been fired at him. Then a police car that had been on patrol came upon the attack, and the shooters ran off as suddenly as they had appeared. The wounded were rushed to the hospital, and despite receiving some serious injuries, nobody died. The bullet that hit Rita Marley had lodged into her scalp as it grazed her head, and so it didn't enter the skull. Bob Marley had been just as lucky. His bullet had skidded the side of his chest just below the heart and lodged in his left arm. Prime Minister Michael Manley visited the wounded in the hospital, and then as soon as Bob Marley was well enough to leave, he went into hiding. He was escorted by the police to an encampment in the mountains outside the city, guarded by soldiers and armed Rastas. While he was there, he planned his next move. Marley was clearly in danger in Kingston, but would he still go to Smile Jamaica? It wasn't entirely clear whether the gunman wanted to kill Marley or just scare him out of playing, but if he didn't perform, they were getting their way regardless. So he did perform. 
Just two days after the shooting, on December 5th, 1976, Bob Marley and the Whalers played at Smile Jamaica as scheduled, to a crowd of over 80,000. Rita Marley performed with the band, her head still bandaged. At the start of the show, Michael Manley joined Marley on stage. The two shared a hug, and then the Prime Minister joined the crowd, exposing himself to the same danger Marley faced in solidarity. Bob Marley wasn't able to strum his guitar with his wounded arm, but he sang and danced throughout their 90-minute set. At the end of the show, he showed his gunshot wounds to the crowd, and laughingly mimed a western-style quick draw with finger guns. There's a really well-known but never formally cited quote from Marley from just after Smile Jamaica. Story goes that he was asked why he chose to perform the show while he was still recovering from a pretty serious gunshot wound. Marley replied, quote, The people trying to make the world worse are not taking the day off. Why should I? End quote. Michael Manley was re-elected as Prime Minister in December of 1976. Just a few days after Smile Jamaica, Bob Marley left the island. He was still in danger there. He spent some time in the United States before going to London, which served as something of a permanent exile from his homeland. In London, he and the Whalers recorded the appropriately named album Exodus, which was released in 1977, just a few months after the assassination attempt. Exodus contains some of the band's most popular songs, including Three Little Birds, Jammin', and One Love, and is widely considered one of the greatest albums of the 20th century. Also in 1977, Marley was diagnosed with acrolitiginous melanoma on his foot. He would continue to tour for some time, and he actually returned to Jamaica for some of these performances. At the One Love Concert for Peace in 1978, he got Michael Manley and Edward Sega on the same stage, and with his hand, raised the two opponents' hands together in a symbolic gesture. His health began to deteriorate from the cancer, and in 1981, arrangements were made for him to return to Jamaica to die. He was supposed to fly to Miami to meet with his family, and then they would all fly to Kingston. But when Marley landed in Miami, he had to be taken to intensive care. During his days in the hospital, he was surrounded by his family, on May 11, 1981, his mother came to visit him, and after a while, he said, I'm going to take a rest now. Bob Marley closed his eyes and never woke up. He was just 36 years old. His body was laid to rest at his birthplace in Nine Mile, Jamaica. To this day, Bob Marley remains one of the most recognizable and beloved musicians in all of history. He was a major player in the popularization of reggae music and Rastafari culture all around the world, and the messages he sent in his songs resonated with millions. So who tried to kill him, and why? The most popular theory, then and now, is that Edward Sega and the Jamaica Labor Party were involved, or at least knew about the plot. Both sides of Jamaican politics desperately wanted Bob Marley's endorsement, and through some clever scheduling, the PNP had seemingly gotten it. And anyway, despite his disdain for politics, Marley's personal viewpoints aligned more with Manley than with Sega. He wanted social reform for Jamaica, and his growing voice may have posed a threat to the JLP. Other theories pin the blame on the PNP itself, or maybe organized crime, or maybe even the CIA. The fact that all of these have been viewed as possibilities really speaks to Bob Marley's reputation as a person who wasn't interested in playing by the rules, especially the inherently rigged rules of the society he grew up in. 
had he been assassinated in 1976, not only would his already short life and career have been cut even shorter, but millions may have missed their chance to be touched by Bob Marley and his music. As always, you can check us out at Foiled Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find the new website for the show at podpage.com foiled. That way, when an episode comes out a little late like this one did, you'll know exactly when it drops. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for another near-death experience on Foiled. Foiled.